0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Iyad Husami, a host of the channel. I have a background in theater, beekeeping, cultural management, and urbanism research, and I lived and worked for more than a decade in Lebanon. Currently, I'm developing a musical theater project, and I'm a postgraduate researcher. My doctoral research project in the Ecological Humanities at the University of Leeds is supported by a UK Arts and Humanities Research Council Fellowship through the White Rose College of the Arts and Humanities. Today, we'll be talking to Kate Rigby about her new book, Reclaiming Romanticism, Towards an Eco-Poetics of Decolonization. Kate, could you please introduce yourself for our listeners?
1: Yes, thank you very much. Um, Okay, so um, I'm a Professor of Environmental Humanities at Bath Spa University in the UK. Um, I'm also Adjunct Professor at Monash University in Australia, where I worked for many years previously. Um, I have a background in German studies and comparative literature and uh, began working in the field that has now become known globally as the environmental humanities. In the late 1990s, um, I uh, was a member of a small multidisciplinary national working group on the ecological humanities, as we called it, which formed um, around 2000. Um, And I uh, ended up being um, the founding president of the Association of Study of Literature and Environment, Australia, New Zealand, which is now um, Literature, Environment and Culture, um, so my my sort of home discipline is literary and cultural studies, but um, I've also engaged very closely with um, eco-philosophy, environmental ethics, and uh, religion and ecology. Um, and my work has quite a sort of historical leaning um, as well as engaging with contemporary uh, literatures and contexts and concerns.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for that nice introduction. And so tell us how you came to write um, Reclaiming Romanticism. What's what's the origin story of this book?
1: Well, the book's actually been brewing for many years, um, and it brings together uh, work that I've been doing on romanticism Um over you know over some considerable period took me back to the territory of an earlier monograph on German and British poetics and philosophies of nature and place, topographies of the sacred. but within a new context um, and in particular worsening um, ecological or socio-ecological crisis, um, the challenge of decolonization, but also the turnaround in the historical and literary critical evaluation of Romanticism um, from a a positive road not taken to a dead end that's contributed to contemporary woes. And I think that many of these kind of critiques of Romanticism have been valid and important, and indeed I sort of, in a way, I was contributing to them um, in uh, Topographies of the Sacred. But... um, I think that they've, they've led to what I consider to be a rather ahistorical and sort of reduc- reductive blanket condemnation um, of Romanticism, the use of kind of romantic as a dirty word. Um, and so this book actually joins a number of other recent publications by eco-critical scholars of Romanticism who are pushing back against what we see as a, a mischaracterisation of the legacy of European Romanticism in particular um, and especially in its first heyday in Britain and the German region around 1800. So specifically um, in Reclaiming Romanticism, what I've endeavoured to do is locate a number of points of departure within particular strands of European Romanticism for an eco-poetics of decolonisation. And so I'm not kind of claiming to talk about Romanticism per se, um, because it's a really heterogeneous phenomenon and contradictory phenomenon. But I'm just really wanting to kind of push back against some of these kind of um, very negative, hostile um, uh, constructions of Romanticism and to bring Romanticism into conversation with the um, poetry and also environmental praxis of contemporary North American and Australian writers and activists. So it's concerned with a kind of um, a positive reinheritance, if you like, um, of Romanticism, which also means a kind of creative and and potentially also critical reimagining of Romanticism.
0: Yes, I was taken by how you repurpose um, these inheritances. I feel that that's a major thrust of the book. And I guess that corresponds with kind of an excavation. um, And the idea of excavation kind of emerges already in your introduction, (laughs) where you propose the term Plautocene. And I was struck by how you analyze the potential of this term alongside other terms that the geologists, the media, and scholars have coined and propagated to describe the era of ecological crisis, whose beginning, be it steam engine, fossil fuel acceleration, or way earlier with the use of fire, is often contested. So what's the story of this term, Plautocene, and why is it relevant to your book?
1: Great, thank you. Well, look, I have to admit that, that it is partially playful. You know, um, humanities scholars are, are a great at proliferating terms and there's already, uh, you know, qu- quite a um, a number of alternative terms to the Anthropocene. The, the serious aspect of it um, is that I actually share the, the sort of widespread concern that scholars in humanities and social sciences have expressed with respect to the coinage Anthropocene. Um to refer to kind of the profound and long-lasting transformations of Earth systems because um, it attributes these changes to a sort of amorphous anthropos, a collective human actor, and in doing so it veils huge discrepancies um, in terms of both culpability for and vulnerability to these changes. So this is why you know I'm, I'm joining, I'm joining the the um, the gang of people looking for kind of alternatives. With respect to the timing um, of these changes, I, I'm prepared to accept the emerging scientific consensus that they become visible kind of globally as something that's going to be in the geological record only from the mid 20th century, um, initially with fallout from nuclear. Um, testing and war, and then a whole mass of changes associated with the so-called great acceleration of industrialization and its impacts um, in the post-war period. But prior to that, you've got a series of, of, of kind of turning points, if you like, really crucial developments that made this all possible. And as you say, you know, right back, if you'd like, to the human mastery of fire, but also including, for example, what Donna Haraway um, and it's and termed the plantation scene beginning in the 17th century and this is this is a term that i also find really helpful but it seems to me that the most immediate enabling condition or the great acceleration was fossil fueled capitalist industrialization and initially using steam engines burning coal um, which is why Crutzen and Sturmer suggested that James Watts um, invention of the steam engine in 1784 could be a kind of you know a marker for the beginning of the Anthropocene. And it's, of course, from this point that CO2 levels um, began to rise and that this rise is traceable as one of the signals of the so-called Anthropocene. Um, And so I'm also particularly interested in this this particular moment because it coincides with the emergence of romanticism in Britain and Germany, and not not coincidentally, um, because, you know, the romantics are responding to um, the, the the scientific and technological revolutions that are um, that that are enabling this um, this industrial transformation of the Earth that's just beginning, uh, particularly in Britain, uh, in this period. And so I take the term Plauticine, I take it, <laughs> it's inspired by um, the a poem by the early British Romantic poet, Anna Seward. It's a poem, Colebrookdale, in which the speaker laments that the genius of the brook, um, the genius loci of the brook that flowed through this once picturesque valley in Colebrookdale had been, as she puts it, by Plutus bribed because it's been sacrificed, the valley has been sacrificed in the production of wealth from the world's first coal-powered iron foundry. So I'm playing in the the coining of this term, I'm playing on the ambiguity of Plutus, which in Greek is Plautus, the god of wealth, and Plauton, who was the Greek god of the underworld. So I'm proposing the Plautocene as the era in which the realm of the dead, literally the remains of ancient plant and marine life, has been exhumed and has invaded Earth's critical zone. So it's an era in which the wealth pursued by plautocrats has been garnered at an intolerable cost to the wider collective of the living Earth.
0: Okay, maybe as we move into the realm of the living, moving forth into the light of things, um, we can discuss uh, one of your chapters titled Come forth into the Light of Things, Contemplative Ecopoetics. There you write, it is in the horizon of the contemporary theorization and instantiation of contemplative ecology that I want to resituate Wordsworth's Ecopoetics Project. Please tell us more about your interest in William Wordsworth and this resituation.
1: situation Okay, so one of the targets of what I consider to be um, an ahistorical and reductive critique of Romanticism is the role of frequently solitary contemplation of natural phenomena or natural cultural uh, places um, that typically rural, they're not. Uh, necessarily, wildernesses tends to be more the case in American Romanticism, um, and sometimes the urban places as well. But this this um, sort of stance of solitary contemplation, often solitary. Walking um, is is critiqued um, often with reference to Keats' rather unkind comment on Wordsworth's allegedly egotistical sublime, um, and I I think this is, um, is a is a mischaracterisation of what's going on here. So I sort of um, seek to uh, reposition this um, stance and this trope historically um, in terms of the long history of traditions of contemplation, Um, you know, going right back to the um, eccentric desert fathers and mothers, um, you know, of fourth century who who rejected um, the, the imperial world of Rome. Rome and withdrew to uh, sort of, I suppose, commune with the divine um, in very countercultural ways, um, in um, it, within the natural world. Um, And these these traditions of contemplation uh, have counterparts in other cultures, and I think that um, they become important within Romanticism, and specifically, I think, explicitly in Wordsworth, but also you can see it elsewhere, as a a mode of resistance to the growing prevalence of objectifying and instrumentalizing attitudes and practices. So the construction of nature primarily as an object of human knowledge and an exploitable resource um, rather than as a kind of collective of more than human entities with which humans are intimately interconnected and indeed in some cases as a locus of of inherent or transcendent value as as holy or as theophanic, as as, as, um, as. a, a space, a place within which you know a trace of the divine is is revealed, and um, Rousseau's Reveries of a Solitary Walker from 1780 was was really um, influential in terms of this kind of recuperation and reconfiguring of um, of the um, of the Christian inheritance of, of contemplation. So, um, so in this con- connection, I contemplate a pair of conversation by poem, uh, conversation poems by Wordsworth, which appeared in the Lyrical Ballads: um, the expostulation and reply, and the tables turned. They seem to be really simple um, little lyrics, but I think they're philosophically quite uh, profound and they constitute a kind of poetic manifesto um, for Wordsworth's Wordsworth's project. So in the first of these, um, the um, the, uh, figure um, uh, who's named as Matthew upbraids his friend William for sitting around all day um, sort of daydreaming, staring at a lake um, instead of devoting himself to book learning, um, it specifically imbibing the spirit breathed from dead men to their kind, um, to which the latter William responds that he's seeking an alternative kind of mental or spiritual nourishment by cultivating what he calls a wise passiveness and looking out, you know, beyond the pages of, of exclusively human texts written by dead men um, and attending instead to what he calls the mighty sum of things forever speaking. And in the second poem, The Tables Turned, William um, endeavours to coax his bookish friend outside into what he calls the light of things. And um, I really love this phrase. It's a sort of classically wordsworthy and swerve away from, from, from what you expected, like you, you expect, the, you know, the light of day or something like that. But no, it's the light of things. And so it's just a, this this little kind of swerve from the expected kind of trips you up as you're reading along, and it makes you slow down and um, and actually contemplate the poem itself as a phenomenon that resists ready comprehension, just as the figure within the poem, William, is kind of um, opening himself up um, to the sort of ungraspable dimension um, of the the world beyond the page. So and then at, at the end of that poem uh, uh, the the phrase come forth into the light of things is repeated then with um this addition bring with you a heart that watches and receives and and this is the kind of contemplative attitude um which involves um a kind of self self emptying a stilling of the mind a stilling of thoughts um and um a, a kind of Attempt to kind of open yourself up to be drawn beyond yourself. So it's 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 not <laughs> egotistical. It's actually about self-emptying. In fact, um, and allowing yourself to be addressed, allowing yourself to be surprised by something uh, from from beyond yourself. And nor is it really sublime. Um, I really love the, the the book by Louisa Conobides on the ecology of wonder in romantic and postmodern literature. And she's got a chapter on Wordsworth where she shows how um, Wordsworth's poetics um, are actually don't privilege the sublime, but they, they're concerned with, with this experience of kind of wonderment and wondering, which is also wondering about things, approaching things um, with a sense of wonder rather than trying to kind of pin them down, um, make them reveal themselves fully, allowing for them to be mysterious and surprising. Um, So, yeah, so I I, I find this um, particularly interesting to to bring into conversation with um, the work of Douglas Christie um, in his book *The Blue Sapphires of the Mind: Towards Contemplative Ecology*, which which um, gives a really detailed kind of explication of the specifically kind of Christian tradition of contemplation, and um, thinks it through in terms of you know how we confront um, a world in crisis um, in in a kind of in a contemplative mode. Um, but I also um, emphasise that, um, that Wordsworth's, um, Wordsworth's uh, stance in these poems is actually it's non-theistic um, and it's not about kind of communicating, communing with, with God in creation but actually it, it, it Communing with creatures, with with, with things, um, uh, human and, and non-human, um, animate and inanimate. The rock he's sitting on, the lake he's looking at. Um, so it's about. Um, uh, it, it's not you know necessarily in in a kind of religious framework. And so I also resituate this um, was worthy contemplative eco poetics through uh, secular um, contemporary secular lines of thought, and in particular. Jane Bennett's vibrant matter, and Stephen Chaviro's speculative realism, um, particularly where he talks um, about drawing on on Harman's work on um, on the aesthetic encounter, um, and. Um, it, Returning to to the Wordsworth poems, I think it's also important to note that the knowing irony um, in the speaker's call to his interlocutor to close up those barren leaves i.e., the books that he's reading, which is also, of course, a call to the reader mediated by just such barren leaves. So, you know, he, he knows that, that he's making this call to, to kind of go forth into the light of things um, and lay aside your book um, in a medium um, that will find its readers in book form. So I read this as a sort of tacit acknowledgement that, that this cultivation um, of a heart that watches and receives is actually is is a cultural achievement. Um, and this implies also that sort of no encounter with things in their, you know, elusive radiance, if you like, is ever entirely pure. So we always bring a stack of prior experiences, memories, ideas, assumptions, etc. with us so part of the work of contemplation um, is to be conscious about about this to become aware of that so there's a self-reflexive moment um, whilst at the same time kind of opening ourselves up to the unexpected so um, yeah, I mean, the point is not to argue that this is the only way we should relate to things or write about our relations with things. Um, this is just the first chapter of the book. It's a portal, if you like. It's a way in. Um, and the, the the point is to say that this is a starting point, if you like, for more respectful, attentive, self-reflexive mode uh, of being in the world um, but it should inform Everything else that that we say and do, and um, in the English-speaking reception of uh, Buddhist practice, it's called mindfulness. Um, so yeah, that's that's where I get to with that.
0: These notions of self-reflexivity and allowing oneself to be addressed by things um, also emerges in contemporary poetry. In your first chapter. You bring to the fore contemporary Canadian poet, Tim Lilburn, quite prominently in your discussion, and you cite his conceptualization of decolonization, which I'm going to take the liberty to read. Tim Lilburn writes, the renovation of Western philosophy required to imagine a post-imperial world cannot be achieved by invention, but only by a retrieval of lost cultural parts it will entail the resuscitation of a larger version of the self deepened interiority that is sustained by conversation with a range of interlocutors not all of them human what does justice now ask of us An as of contemplative acts which offers no strategic efficiency yet nevertheless contains within itself the germ of the sole durable politics so my question for you then is how do you engage Lilburn and his linking between escasis and what he calls durable politics? And I'm also curious about the role or absence or question um, of class and the role that class plays in his claim. <laughs>
1: Thanks. Yeah, it's it's a big claim, isn't it? <laughs> I, I kind of immediately want to qualify it. So the, the, the first thing to note is um, Lilburn's expression, germ, the germ of a durable politics. So again, to kind of reiterate you know what I've just said, that contemplative praxis is not the end but the beginning or it's the underpinning for political engagement within, and in this case within the horizon of an ethics of decolonisation. So um, it's not a substitute for, for, you know, for other forms of political engagement, but it's something that should inform and underpin our political engagement. And uh, you know, as I've already suggested with reference to Douglas Christie's work, um, contemplation is not only directed towards you know the beautiful or the or the you know the pleasurable, but also the, the terrible, the utterly terrible. And um, it can and indeed needs to include contemplation of devastated country and devastated communities. And again, we we can we can see we can see this in Wordsworth in his lines written in early spring, where the speaker's contemplation of the apparent enjoyment in their own existence of the plants, insects and birds that he's witnessing leads to a deepened sense of wrong with respect to social injustices, what man has made of man. So in the context of decolonization, it surely entails contemplating the colonial ravaging of country and communities. And and with that, a deep listening to what Indigenous peoples are saying about their history, their present, and their hopes for the future, and also an endeavour to understand their different way of ways of understanding things. You know, in technical terms, like epistemology, ontology, and ethics. Um, and in fact, Lilburn um, has been doing this himself by endeavouring to learn um, an Indigenous language, the Saanich language, Um, and with that to sort of understand the, the, the different ways in which the world speaks through that language. Um, and also the cultural horizon within which um, the human kind of language and verbalizations is understood as in some sense kind of continuous with the verbalizations of the more than human world. Again, I have to say I'm reminded of words with some of things forever speaking. Um, but I think what Lilburn is also pointing here To here is that in the context of settler colonial nations such as Canada or indeed Australia, my own context, overcoming hegemonic relations between sort of colonizing and colonized peoples and cultures needs to be viewed through an intersectional lens, a, a, indeed attentive to relations of gender, class, sexuality, but also hegemonic the hegemonic dimension of human-non-human relations within the dominant settler culture. So hence his call for a wider conversation with diverse interlocutors, not all of them human. And um, in the book that you've just quoted from, Lubin, Lubin observes um, that, that that Europe came maimed to North America. Um, and um, I, this is certainly true um, in Australia as well. And he goes on to say specifically, beholden, and this is a quote now, to a sort of reasoning that Val Plumwood, um, Australian feminist um, eco-philosopher, um, that Val Plumwood called hyper-rationality which he terms the cognitive lymph of turbo capitalism, and so it's for this reason he maintains a work of decolonization from the side of the coloniser entails both, you know, recognising past wrongs and continuing social injustice and ecological damage, but also the recovery of suppressed counter-traditions. And in particular, he's interested in uh, and engaged with um, contemplative practices. Um, I think very much, you know, in the sense that that, that Wordsworth and and, um, and other romantics looked to these practices as a mode of resistance to the instrumental rationality that construes the colonial earth as property to be disposed of at will and a resource to be exploited to the the hilt. Um, And um, so um, what I actually end up saying (laughs) in the book, um, uh, which was a kind of an impetus very much kind of all along for me, um, is that um, I, I, I feel with... With Lilburn, that these these European counter traditions um, are something that non-indigenous people can actually bring to the table in order to potentially open up some common ground with First Peoples. You know, because otherwise we come empty-handed, saying, "Oh, we want your we want your mythology, we want your ontology." Instead, we can say, "Well, look, um, you know." Um, We've, we've, we've also got um, some traditions that, that, that maybe we can kind of bring into conversation, and we can, we can, we can share, uh, develop some shared understandings, um, and so it becomes a kind of a site from which to kind of renegotiate our relations with one another and with other, with other, with other others, um, and including what the first peoples of, of Turtle Island refer to as kindred uh, plant and animal nations. So to the question of class, um, this is interesting. Um, So first thing to say is there are different traditions of contemplation, even within Christianity and certainly um, cross-culturally. And I don't feel that contemplative praxis per se is is actually strongly tied to class in any way, except to the extent that historically it's actually been associated with voluntary poverty. Um, But, you know, it's something that anyone can do anywhere, anytime. And there is, of course, a corporate face to it these days, um, you know, practice meditation so you can be more effective in the workplace and make more money and all that sort of thing. Uh, but it also has a countercultural and, and indeed an eco-political face. Um, so I talk about the, um, the the importance of contemplative practices, Um je- Typically framed um, in um, kind of a more Buddhist sense as mindfulness, it's now recognised as crucial to what's being called inner transition or inner transformation um, towards sustainability. So, for example, in the um, in the transition town movement, but these contemplative practices, um, cultivation of mindfulness. Um, are also being incorporated into activist movements. Um, And um, since I published the book, I've been sort of engaging uh, a bit more with Extinction Rebellion, and actually specifically um, the um, Christian Climate Action, which is kind of Christian um, group within Extinction Rebellion. Um, who are also connected up with with um, people of other faiths within Extinction Rebellion in what's called a faith bridge, a kind of interfaith group within Extinction Rebellion. And um, there, you know, the um, practice, these contemplative practices entailing, you know, self-examination, um, acknowledging, acknowledging, you know, but not being driven by anger, fear, grief, etc. Not assuming that you have all the answers. Not demonizing the other side. Um, Endeavouring to love your neighbour. Cultivating a kind of um, you know, a place of peace within yourself from which to resist nonviolently. Um, this is really it's really important training for um for nonviolent direct action. So. Um, so you know, I, I see this as 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 again you know again something that is um, a, a kind of preparation, if you like, a kind of really crucial way of developing um, a, a, a mode of comportment um, um, that is essential for other you know forms of political engagement.
0: Okay, maybe we can move to uh, chapter two and effective ecopoetics. There, the idea of transcorporeality is central. How do you understand that idea, and what do you seek to uncover through such an investigation?
1: Well, I should say first of all that um, this is not my coinage. Uh, coinage. So transcorporeality was um, is a, uh, proposed by Stacy Lemo um, and explored in her really important 2010 book, *Bodily Nature: Science, the Environment, and the Material Self*. And um, Alemo uses this term to highlight the inequitable distribution. Of environmental harms particularly pertaining to the passage of, of, of toxins through the semi-permeable membrane of human skin and the gastrointestinal t- tract. I'm using the term differently um, to explore the affective aspect of transcorporeality. And this was of particular interest to Romantic era sort of writers, philosophers and indeed physicians who were um, looking at the way in which the physical qualities of things, of environments, times of day, times of year, as perceived through the senseate human body, a pinge upon our sensibility, mood, and state of mind. And of course, one of those was Keats, John Keats, um, who himself had medical training. And um, in this chapter, I I look at um, the 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 way that um, that Keats uh, invokes the affective experience of of seasonal change in his his famous Ode um, to Autumn. Um, And there's a connection here with contemplative practice because um, it can also engender a deepened appreciation of the bodily dimensions of our own being. So it it involves kind of asking yourself, Mm, how am I feeling in this space at this time Um, and in this way it also sort of pushes back against um, if you like raciocentric constructions of the human subject as a quasi-disembodied mind immune to environmental influences so it's about incorporating our corporeality and therefore also our environmentality the way that we are um, affected by the spaces and places that we find ourselves in incorporating this into our sense of self So, this is a sort of material um, phenomenology of transcorporeality, and it's informed by the ecological um, aesthetics of the German environmental philosopher Gernot Burmer, which I've written about um, on several occasions previously, in fact, um, including um, in the book that I co edited with Axel Goodbody um, on. European um, uh, eco-critical theory and European um, philosophy. So Burma's ecological aesthetics turns on the phenomenon of what he calls atmosphere, um, which is the the medium in which we experience um, our environs, if you like, on an an effective level. Uh, And, you know, we use this term in everyday speech, don't we say, oh, a strange atmosphere in here. So Burma wants to take this really seriously (laughs) through a kind of material uh, phenomenological lens. But he also maintains that uh, poetic language um, is capable of evoking these sort of um, atmospheric experiences um, through language, through particularly sensuous imagery including uh, culturally recognised verbal insignia, as he he terms them, that call to mind and thereby also kind of summon in the flesh the mood-altering atmospheres associated with, for example, particular times of day or times of year. Um, So previously I've kind of been resistant to the proposition that these um, in text to atmospheres could invoke um, similar effective responses to in situ experiences of atmosphere. But I've been persuaded by um, mm. my wonderful um, fellow eco critics, such as Alexa bike von Mostner, that in fact um, there is really something in this. So um, this is... Um, These, uh, uh, um, Alexa looks at um, research in neurolinguistics, which provides both empirical evidence and an explanation for how words can actually, you know, invoke feelings, sensations, um, moves that you may experience, um, uh, you know, in in a particular uh, context, in a particular situation. Um, Through the... uh, uh, the mirror neurons which are involved in empathy and um, I actually had a conversation with a lecturer about this recently I think it's um, it's I think that this in part is precisely what the romantics referring to um, under the rubric of imagination um, which they too recognize had a bodily basis um, so yeah so, so in my discussion of um, effective ecopoetics, I, I'm I, Particularly focus in on the literary invocation of transcorporeal affects arising from weather and seasonality, um, because in, it, it enables us to kind of reflect upon the disjunction between our seasonal expectations and the weird weather of a warming world. So, this is like the kind of phenomenological <laughs> dimension, if you like, of um, of anthropogenic weather weirding. Um, and then, more generally, also, how can I consider how this affective dimension of transcorporeality is involved in experiences um, of well being, or indeed the reverse, in particular kinds of environment. Um, And there I do um, also very much engage with questions of of, of class um, and other um, diversities um, because it opens on to eco political questions about who has or who does not have access to places and spaces conducive to a sense of well being.
0: Thank you. Now I suggest we move to uh, the US, Uh, American, Black American, German American, Berlin American. um, I think many places, nations uh, claim Audre Lorde. She and her 1997 poem, The Bees, stand out in your book, which is primarily concerned with the British Commonwealth and European culture. In fact, you produce her poem, The Bees in Full, which now I will read for our listeners for discussion. In the street outside a school, what the children learn possesses them. Little boys yell as they stone a flock of bees trying to swarm between the lunchroom window and an iron grate. The boys sling furious rocks, smashing the windows. The bees, buzzing their anger, are slow to attack. Then one boy is stung into quicker destruction and the school guards come, long wooden sticks held out before them. They advance upon the hive, beating the almost finished rooms of wax apart, mashing the new tunnels in while fresh honey drips down their broomsticks and the little boy feet becoming expert in destruction trample the remaining and bewildered bees into the earth. Curious and apart, four little girls look on in fascination, learning a secret lesson and trying to understand their own destruction. One girl cries out, hey, the bees weren't making any trouble, and she steps across the feebly buzzing ruins to peer up at the empty grated nook. We could have studied (laughs) honey-making. So what is noteworthy about this poem,
1: Kate? (laughs) Well, just hearing you read it, um, again, I'm sort of struck what a harrowing poem it is. Um, So, yes, I discuss Lord um, alongside a contemporary African-American woman poet, Natasha Trithuey. In my chapter on creaturely eco poetics, and this is where I very much engage with the with the concept of the plantation scene. Um, so I'll just say a few words about what I mean by creaturely eco poetics, and I'll come back to the plantation scene because that's really why we why I turn to the US here, and particularly to um, African American poetry. So um, creaturely, ecopoetics highlights human entanglements, which I see as both material and moral with other living beings. And these entanglements entail shared, if unevenly distributed, vulnerabilities, as well as shared, if variegated, communicative capacities. And these entanglements as I think we see very profoundly in the Lord poem, harbour the ever-present risk of conflict and harm. But also, as we see in the inter- inter- interjection of the little girls, opportunities to co-create emergent multi-species worlds no longer constrained by the colonizing logic, uh, you know, as I've discussed it in the previous chapters of human, non-human hyper separation and may be free to sort of explore um, what I call more felicitous forms of coexistence in risky times. So as I say, it's in this connection um, I turn my attention to the um, co-becoming of humans and bees along with the plants they pollinate, because this has a very, very long history in um, European poetry, right back to um, classical pastoral and, um, and Georgic, poetry but um, in the romantic period um, I look at the work of John Clare and a couple of pair of bee poems by by John Clare viewed in the horizon of the plantation scene so just say a, a few words to explain that if that's um an unfamiliar term for some of lis- listeners So it predates and enables what I'm calling the Plotocene. Um, And as um, Haraway and Singh um, frame it, it kicks off in the 16th century um, uh, with what Haraway um, describes as the devastating transformation of diverse kinds of human-tended farms, pastures and forests into extractive and enclosed plantations, relying on slave labour and other forms of exploited, alienated and usually spatially transported labour. So the enclosure of the commons, which was kind of a really crucial experience um, and a catastrophic experience in in Claire's life, um, Back home in England, um, it you know has its kind of counterpart in the colonies, um, in the appropriation of indigenous lands and um, the enslavement um, of um, of Africans, um, typically to work uh, on these plantations, and so this is why I then turn to what I see as a creole eco poetics of um, the descendants of this enslaved Africans um, to find a a counterpart um, for, for Claire's. So um, Lord's poem is included in um, Camille um, Dungey's wonderful collection of African American nature poetry, and um, it appears in a section called Dirt on Our Hands, um, highlighting, quote, the barriers that have been established between humans and the natural world, encouraging destruction and disaffection, discouraging cooperative thinking, and eves- eventually ushering in certain trauma and death. And I'm particularly struck uh, by the resonance between this poem and a sonnet by Claire called Wild Bees Nest, which also depicts the ravaging of a bees nest in in, um, strongly gendered and also implicitly sexualized terms. So in Lord's poem, the image of the fresh honey that drips down their broomsticks is is metonymic of wastage. You know, all that she really emphasises these these bees, this um, uh, female community, not insignificantly for Lord. Um, Who've been busily creating their 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 new uh, their new nest has been laid to waste, but there's also perhaps a kind of um, um, meta- metaphor of, of rape there as well. So Lord, kind of, she leaves us to wonder about the source of the um, of the, the fear and and hostility underlying the boy's um, aggressive reaction to the swarming bees. Um, But it focuses instead on the perspective of the four girls who look look in on fascination. And we discover, I suppose, in the second stanza, that it's they who are the subject of the opening line in the street outside a school, what the children learn possesses them. And what the girls are trying to understand in view of this display of, of masculine aggression towards the other Um, The denial of the bees agency, the negation of their efforts to craft a new abode is their own destruction or potential destruction because, of course, viewed in the context of Lord's womanist uh, politics, there's clearly an implied call for resistance here but also perhaps to forge an alternative um, way of being, embracing multiple differences, including that of species. So I, th- I find this poem sort of interesting in terms of uh, an intersectionality um, um, which brings together um, gender, possibly race, although that's that's backgrounded here. Uh, certainly certainly gender, um, and and species as well. But I have to say that from a contemporary perspective, I actually find the Trithui poem that I discussed, Carpenter Bee, Carpenter B, um, m- m- more complex ecopolitically and also far more disturbing because it doesn't involve intentional dis- destruction. Outright, you know, aggression and violence, but rather it highlights how the everyday homemaking efforts of a woman of color, moreover, so one whom we have to assume bears her own history of domination and displacement on the basis of race, possibly also gender, her, just her perfectly ordinary homemaking efforts in unhoused and imperil this other than human neighbor or neighbor so in this case it's just a single bee in her brood um the bee has burrowed into the wood um, um, of her balcony and uh, and created a nest in there and she's brought in the pest control people to uh, to, to to block it up Um, But, you know, it's possible to to sort of scale this up to a consideration of how, for example, you know, the purchase of a virtuously non-dairy almond milk might make you complicit in toxic monocultures. And, um, you know, this is how the plantation scene continues to to unfold in the present. Um, And both wild bees and honeybees are um, a victim um, to to these toxic monocultures, so yeah, carpenter bee is this is this is our situation where like so perfectly kind of ordinary things can can have really terrible kind of consequences at a distance and in complex ways.
0: Leaving the bees behind, we will turn now to William Blake, and you write about Blake the mythic poetic potential of literature to propel cultural revolution was widely championed during the Romantic period. In that context, you present Blake as one of the few Romantic era writers in the UK or in Europe to come close to the spinning of new mythologies and new revelations against dogma, against scientific mechanism, against tyranny. Can you elaborate?
1: Thank you. Yeah, so um, the, the the call for for a new mythology, a mytho- an enlightened mythology, or even a mythology of reason, um, you, it was kind of quite widespread, but it was most explicit um, in this strange strange little text um, um, that is written in Hegel's handwriting, but uh, almost certainly as a sort of co-production by Hegel um, and his um, contemporary philosopher Schelling and also the poet, the writer Hölderlin, they were students together. Um, and they wrote this, uh, they simply written this, this little essay called The Oldest Sys- System Programme of German Idealism and that the, um, the manuscript dates from 1796. So this wasn't wildly, widely known, but the ideas certainly were widely circulating. And um, it involves the recognition of the importance of the Enlightenment questioning. Of you know, previous taken for granted, including very much religious dogma. Um, and actually, just as inside, I should say, I mean, one of the long-standing misconstructions of romanticism is that it's somehow kind of irrationalist and kind of anti-enlightenment. Um, I don't think it is, um, but it is a you could almost say it's a kind of a radicalisation of certain Enlightenment ideas as well as a kind of counter, you know, offers kind of counterpositions to certain aspects of the Enlightenment. So there's a sort of, you know, uh, um, uh, an uh, an acceptance of the importance of, of this questioning of dogma but also the need for, compelling narratives um, um, uh, informed by new understandings of the natural world and of human subjectivity, but narratives that um, are able to sort of engage people um, on the level of of imagination and affect and also bring in ethical considerations. So this is the idea of a kind of a new mythology, um, new enlightened mythology that that um, these intellectuals, you know, hoped that, um, that, that new kinds of literature might, might be able to provide. Um, I have to say that, um, you know, this is something that we hear a lot today as well, isn't it? You know, we need new narrative and, and um, so on. Um, and I, I think this is true, but, but um, um, I, one thing that's sort of been really important for me in my own sort of um, intellectual formation is um max weber's analysis of um the protestant work ethic and and its Sort of uptake um, w- within Protestantism, and what one of the things that Weber points out is that that, that um, similar kind of critiques um, of you know Catholic um, ab- you know abuses as he saw them um, and um, arguments about you know uh, you know everybody should be able to um, read the Bible for themselves and make their own sense of it. They'd actually been around for a while, and it was only when you had a kind of group in society for whom these ideas made sense in terms of the way of life that it gets taken up. So, you know, we, we can't just rely, we can't rely on literature. Uh, We can't rely on, on, on narratives. Um, We, we need to look at the kind of material, um, socio-ecological transformations that make it possible for people to become receptive (laughs) to, uh, to the new mythology. So, I think I depart a little bit from from the Romantics from that perspective who really did um, um, have high hopes for um, the way that, um, you know, that that a kind of revolutionary literature could, could bring about social transformation. I don't think it's that straightforward. But nonetheless, coming back to this question of Blake, so there are various kind of versions of this, of this project, of the kind of um, a mythopoetic project um, of, of um, the Romantic period, often involved reworking earlier myths. Um, so Shelley's Prometheus Unbound um, would be a, um, a rather stunning case in point. But what is really extraordinary in in Blake um, is that he actually sort of invents um, a whole new mythology. So he is a mythographer who who creates these kind of new mythic figures. For example, in in the Four Zoas um, um, manuscripts from 1790 we have these um, four, the fourfold um, that kind of got separated. horizon um, connected with reductive or calculative rationality and social convention, or Thorna or Los connected with inspiration, imagination, Tamas, instinct, force, Luva, or Orkin and other manifestations, kind of love and passion. Um, and um, so, um, so yes, yeah, so so Blake Blake is a mythographer in his own in, in his own right. But what particularly or also interests me in, in Blake's work um, is what what he is doing with this um, with this mythography, um, and I see it as a um, a, a kind of extension um, of the biblical prophetic and apocalyptic tradition, um, and. You know, it is almost certainly informed by Jewish and Christian uh, mystical writing, uh, but also by a new biblical scholarship, which resituated the scriptures as, um, you know, as historically kind of located and culturally contingent and poetically crafted works of literature, as a sort of open ended. So the Bible is is, is reconceived. Um, particularly by German uh, biblical scholars and those who are kind of engaging with biblical scholarship, scholarship like Friedrich Schlegel um, as, a, as an open-ended anthology and it's open-ended not only on the level of interpretation but also in the sense that more books could be added to it. Um, so the, the Bible's not a closed book, <laughs> if you like. It's an open, open-ended open anthology. Um, and this is ex- in fact how um, the really, really important um Theologian and biblical scholar Friedrich Schleiermacher um, comments on the Bible and his talks on religion to its culture despises. So Blake, um, for Blake, th- the role of the prophet was twofold, and this is really very prof- much profoundly um, indebted to the Hebrew, he- Hebraic conception of the, of the, of the prophet, um, as you know, we see it um, in what Christians call the first testament. So the role of the prophet was twofold: so to lament and to warn. Uh, Blake says, "You know, if so, then so. You know, if we continue down this path, then things are going to get really bad, indeed." Uh, to lament, to, to warn, to sort of amplify, if you like, or lift up, you know, the, the the cry of the oppressed, but also to hold open the vision of a just and peaceable future. So one of the the um, shorter um, Texts of Blake that I ponder here is um is his auguries of innocence, which hints at the entanglement of different kinds of wrongs, if you like. So cruelty to animals and social injustices. You know how a robin red breast in a cage puts all heaven in a rage. Is interrelated um, with, you know, the babe that weeps, the rod beneath the beggar's rags, the harlot's cry, and the plight, the plight of the poor and those pressed into military service. Um, and again, very much in keeping with the um, the Hebrew prophets, such as Jeremiah. Blake is amplifying both the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor and he's doing so very consciously in the context of capitalist industrialization and imperialist expansion and anticipating how the failure to respond to these injustices could lead to um, what he calls the desolated earth that he prefigures in in his epic uh, poem Milton. And what I think is also interesting and important to stress is that Blake's redemptive vision um, actually entails a reconciliation of science and poetry, reason and imagination, which which kind of resonates um, with this older system program. So in Jerusalem, he envisages envisages a sort of ecotopian city, um, the new Jerusalem, Golgannouza. It's a commonwealth of love in which the creatures of the earth too, have been liberated from human tyranny. And um, hovering above this, we see, you know, the erstwhile targets of his critique, um, Bacon, Newton, and Locke, uh, appear together with Chaucer, Shakespeare, and Milton. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, the the romantic um, mythopoetic project was very much... About reconciling um, reason and imagination, science and poetry, not of setting, you know, the latter up against the former.
0: Thank you. Moving now from prophecy to decoloniality, I'd like to read an excerpt from Kumbilor Hill in My Country by contemporary Wiraduji. We are a jury poet, Janine Lane, who features in chapter five of your book. The poem begins I come back and see a hill, barren, cleared of trees, sectioned by fences, like a checkerboard of games won and lost. Only the rocks, anchored so deep they cannot be moved, remain. A dry creek bed, thirsty for a long time, now faded stones no longer shining sharp, rounded what has passed. Could you tell us about this poet and how the histories of displacement, genocide, and ecocide, as well as the promise of decolonial resistance, reverberate in her work?
1: Thank you. Um, So lovely to hear Janine's work um, recited here. So as you say, she is a contemporary um, Wiradjuri poet and scholar from New South Wales. She actually grew up uh, on a sheep station near Gundagai, uh, which is a small town that's among the most celebrated in 19th century settler Australian bush ballads and also country and western songs and she tells us she was raised by her grandmother and two aunts so she's written a really delightful but also of course challenging partly autobiographical um, collection of rural yarns as she puts it called purple threads uh, where um, we we get a little bit of a glimpse into this um, upbringing so the, the lands of the Wiradjuri were invaded right around the same time that the commons of Clare's parish of Helpston were being enclosed and they were appropriated to largely to run sheep uh, for the wool that was sent back to the mills of the mother country. And um, this poem is um, one of three that I discussed from her 2018 collection, Walk Back Over, and uh, I bring a um, uh, Len's work into conversation with the poetry of non-Indigenous, in fact, Anglo-Celtic writer and scholar Anne Elvey. Um, again, like Lilburn approaching this difficult task um, um, of decolonisation from the perspective of the coloniser. So Walk Back Over is Lane's um, second collection of poetry. Uh, Her first collection was called Dark Secrets After Dreaming, AD 1887 to 1961. And there she draws on family stories to disclose a hidden history of Wiradjuri women in particular, as she puts it, from campfire to captivity to confinement and through colonisation. Um, Telling the tragic story of early invasion of the Wadru lands and the institutionalisation of children, the failure of the settlers to read and understand the land, which has led to really terrible ecological degradation in Australia, including um, the fact that Australia has the highest mammalian extinction rate uh, in the world, for example. Um, So Lynne observes that the book also speaks to the resilience of Aboriginal people and especially women. Um, So in the second collection, she continues this work of walking back over the past in order to recall a different history from that which prevails in the national narratives of the dominant settler culture. And here he she's exploring how contested memories of the past get voiced in the present and how this can sort of enable or also foreclose different pathways into the future. So um, Lynn tells us she's of mixed Anglo-Celtic, Aboriginal, possibly Chinese heritage. She was schooled by Catholic mums and she's also very much a participant in sort of wider settler societies, teaching creative writing at the University of Melbourne, in fact, at the moment. So she's got the advantage, often enjoyed by members of minority groups, of being able to see through the lens of more than one cultural prism. And... um, in many of the poems in Walk Back Over um, she exploits the potential of uh, modern English lyric poetry um, as it, you know, has come down towards, in fact, from Wordsworth and the Romantics to claim a voice with which to write back against what she calls white fella narratives. So the poem that you've just read from has a kind of elegiac quality, um, but the other poems I discuss actually foreground the continuing vibrancy of Abro- Aboriginal country and culture. And um, she, more recently, she, she's actually edited a really important collection of Australian First Nations poems called Guayu, which means for all times in English. And many of the poems that are written in or include words from indigenous languages. So it's very much a celebration of survivance and recovery. And this includes, importantly, the regeneration of indigenous languages and the ways of seeing and speaking the land that are embedded in them.
0: Okay. Thank you. And now for our last question. Your book underlines the insufficiency of poetry and the need for transformation beyond the page. You've already discussed um, the prospect of social transformation, I think, um, when you were discussing uh, mythopoetic potential in the Romantic period. So my question for you, Kate, is how did working on this book change your conceptions of activism and perhaps your own praxis beyond the page?
1: Thank you. Well, I think I need to stress, first of all, that, that the call for an eco from beyond the page doesn't mean that I consider the work of words to be inherently deficient. Um, you know, I would hate um, my poet, you know, friends and colleagues to uh, to think that I'm kind of running down poetry. Um, so I really want to say clearly here that poetic language has its own irreducible and incalculable significance, um, but. Uh, The the deficiency, um, you know, if there is one, I I came to realise probably lies more with the practice of literary criticism, um, especially in our own moment of, you know, really profound socio-ecological crisis. So eco-criticisms has certainly pushed the envelope of the discipline in mainstreaming ecological and eco-justice concerns in the literature classroom, and including the importantly in schools, although I think that transfer is probably only just beginning. But methodologically, it's it's remained largely bound to the historical hermeneutic methods of literary criticism as usual. And I sort of you know, as I was writing this book, you know, I began to feel really hemmed in by this. And this is why each chapter ends with a consideration of, well, you know, how would the this eco-poetic art of resistance, how would that get translated um, into a kind of wider eco-poetic practice um, of kind of um, socio-ecological transformation? So um I'm really interested in the emergence of various forms of empirical eco-criticism that are using social science methods to try and better understand the actual resonance and effects of reading different kinds of texts in different contexts. And I see this move beyond the confines of traditional humanities methods to collaborate more closely with researchers in social and also natural sciences and also to incorporate some of their methods. I see this as key to the emergence of the environmental humanities as a genuinely inter or transdisciplinary field rather than just as a kind of multidisciplinary gathering. But in my own work, I'm particularly interested in getting more involved um, with ethnography, and in particular um, what's become known as multi-species ethnography, and bringing to that my own sort of historical hermeneutic lens. So looking at the ways in which earlier texts and traditions are getting reimagined in the co-creation of multi-species sites of recovery and regeneration, uh, so sym- sympoietic refugia of kin-making, as Donna Haraway puts it. And just as a footnote there, um, sympoiesis is also um, something advocated by um, the uh, German romantic Friedrich Schlegel, although he's using it somewhat differently from Haraway. So in my current research um, at the intersection of sort of environmental, literary and religious studies, I'm particularly interested in creative initiatives where the work of words Gets wedded to other modes of eco poetic practice, and um, so for example, I'm I'm looking at a um, a really inspired project called Aftermath Weeds and Wilding, which is underway. At the Anglican Church of St James's Piccadilly, um, which is a, it's a gold award-winning eco-church in the heart of London, um, where um, this a rather marvellous um, trio of an agricultural scientist, an artist and a poet uh, working with the kind of wider community um, to to actually to sell, se- first of all celebrate the weeds that actually grew up in the church after it was bombed during the Second World War, but um, kind of more generally to 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 consider human interrelationships with plants and and particularly plants that we might construe as weeds, and to actually question the whole kind of. Construction, the whole notion of the weed, um, and um, to, to, to take this um, take this kind of history um, of, of disaster. In fact, the, the bombing of the church um, as an opportunity to explore sort of multi species, interspecies um, ways of of forms of recovery, regeneration, and, and resilience um, in our troubled present
0: fascinating well i'll be very curious to follow up on that in the coming years and hear more about that and read more about that thank you so much kate for being on the show today it was really a delight and privilege to speak with you and i wish you a wonderful end of year and a warm and cozy winter
1: thank you very much